Some of you may have seen the short article in the Statesman this um, last week, a quote from a Dr. George Levinger, who's a psychology professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. He said uh, that men especially have trouble sustaining long-term relationships. In general, men do have certain biases that make forming and maintaining relationships difficult for them. They have a hard time communicating their feelings. Also, they don't listen well. That hurts. Uh, That kind of egocentrism uh, can harm a relationship. Levinger adds that men tend to be more centered on work than relationships, and that in relationships they tend to put more emphasis on uh, sex. Women, though, are more interested in warmth and security. Uh, Sophie Tucker said that... uh, A woman from 0 to 18, what makes a woman feel secure from 0 to 18 is good parents. From 18 to 25, it's good looks. From 25 to 50, it's a good husband. And from 50 on, it's cash. (laughs) Now, uh, I'll leave it up to you whether that's wisdom or not. But uh, it does indicate that uh, there is a vast difference between men and women. Dr. Levinger is right. Women tend to fix on relationships. Men tend to be obsessed by their work. And that's a sort of thing that goes all the way back to the fall. Uh, it, it always impresses me how, w- with what uncanny, uh, uncanny insight uh, the Scripture looks at, at marriage and relationships. Uh, in Genesis 3, we're told that, uh, that, that the man would earn his bread by the sweat of his brow, that the, the earth would become his enemy, it would war against him, and that his work would never uh, return, uh, the, would, would never give the sort of gain that he looks for, never pays off. Payday is never the payoff. There's always something more. And that's why men become obsessed and preoccupied with their work. That's why they become workaholics. That's why they, they fix on their jobs and ignore their families. It's, it's all the fall to the fall. And uh, that women, correspondingly, tend to fix on their relationship with their husband and, and, and become obsessed with that and their relationship with their children. So Dr. Levinger is right. He's simply saying again what the Scripture has said for, for thousands of years. Now, I'd like to have you look at a psalm that deals with this issue. It's uh, Psalm 127. It's very short. It only has five verses. Uh, one of the secretaries said this past week, how in, how in the world can you speak 40 minutes on uh, five verses? Uh, I guess my response at the time would be, I could speak eight minutes on every verse, but uh, right now I only have 25 minutes, so the problem is solved. <laughs> But we'll do the best we can. One of the other staff guys said he can speak 40 minutes on anything. So. Uh, if you look at the psalm carefully, you'll notice it's another of these songs of ascent. One of the songs that the pilgrims sang on the way up to the, uh, up to the temple when they made their uh, three pilgrimages to, to stand before the temple and to worship as a family there. It's said to be a, a, a psalm of Solomon, which sets it apart. It's not Davidic. It, it, it's one of Solomon's songs. He wrote uh, psalms as well as Proverbs. Uh, these titles are gen- generally reliable. 
And so we can expect this song to have a little different flavor than some of David's songs. It's more proverbial. It's more axiomatic. When you read it, it sounds like a law of physics. Unless the Lord builds a house, he says, the builders build in vain. It's axiomatic. It's a proverbial statement. And you'll notice that there are two paragraphs. The first two verses deal with work, the problem of work. The last uh, three verses that appear to be an add-on, they don't seem to have any relationship to what goes before. It's almost as though the psalmist uh, tacked a few more verses on because it was too short to begin with. But it all fits together because the, the second paragraph has to do with worth. Or put another way, the first two verses deal with uh, the matter of how we should work. And the last three verses take up the matter of what we should work for. And it puts everything in perspective for us in terms of our obsession with work and the problems that we have in working out our relationship. This is a great verse for men, a great psalm for men as well as for women. Unless the Lord builds the house, Solomon says, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. The word toiling here is the same word that occurs in Genesis 3, with reference to the pain of childbirth and to the sort of toil that men are, are forced uh, into because of, of, the fall, of the fall. The word really means to be grieved as a result of, of fall. As you know, Genesis 3 does not say that it is childbirth that causes pain. The word actually is grief. The fall brought grief into the whole process of child raising because you're raising fallen uh, creatures. That's, that's why mothers hurt so much for their children, and fathers should. And uh, secondly, because of the fall, we toil in our labor. It causes us grief. And that's the word he picks up here, the same word that's used in Genesis 3.16 and 3.17 for the pain or grief of child rearing and the pain of, of work, of, of one's vocation. Why, he says, do you stay up uh, late at night and get up early in the morning? Why do you chain yourself to your desk? Uh, working yourself to a, a frazzle. Why? Why do you do that? He said. Now, he puts the principle in the form of an axiom. Unless the Lord builds the house, the labor uh, builds in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen are wakeful in vain. Now, this answers the question of who does what. Uh, that question is all, all, often... Uh, uh, raised by Christians. To what extent do I labor? How much human effort is involved in life? And how much is divine activity? Well, this puts the two together. The psalmist is very clear that, that we are supposed to work. And we are supposed to work hard. There's nothing wrong with work. Work is not the result of the fall. Man and, and his partner had to work before the fall uh, occurred. Uh, they were to tend the garden. They were to serve the ground. They were to, to take care of God's creation. And they were to work hard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with hard work. The, the Bible takes a very balanced and realistic view of work. It, it doesn't glorify work. It doesn't deify it. It doesn't make it absolute. Uh, unemployment is not the unforgivable sin that we make it out to be. Uh, 
and it doesn't denigrate work. It puts it in balance. We are supposed to work. Indolence is wrong. It's a sin. As a matter of fact, that's, a, that's an issue that the Apostle Paul takes up in the book of Second uh, Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn back to that, to that letter, Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Paul says, In the name of the Lord Jesus, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Now, he's not talking about people who can't work or people who can't find work. He's talking about people who won't work. They're lazy. They wait for everybody. They wait for a handout. Like the man who got all peeved because he had to walk all the way out to his, his mailbox to get his welfare check every month. They won't work. And Paul says, you know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help. Paul was an apostle and they could have supported him. But he says, we did it in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And then he goes on to say, this is a very serious matter. This is not just good advice. This is not some apostolic counsel. This is an apostolic command, he says. We should work. We should work hard. So work is good. But we have to face the fact that work is hard because we live in a fallen world. The, the, the world has become our adversary. So... The ground grows thistles, and it's tough out there. And there's a tendency to be preoccupied with our labor. And we tend to get restless and, and sleepless. That's why the psalmist, if you want to turn back to Psalm 127 now, says it's vain to rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he gives sleep to those he loves. Now, if you have a New American Standard, it's, it translates, for he gives to those he loves in their sleep. And that's a possibility. It could go either way. Scholars are unsure how it should be translated. But however you translate it, the point is that God is the one who provides. So we ask the question, you know, what, what is our part? What is God's part? Our, our part is to work and labor hard, but, but to do so in a restful, quiet spirit, knowing that ultimately it's God who provides. We have to work, he says. The, the, the man who uh, constructs buildings, who constructs a house, has to labor. He uses a very strong word. He has to sweat. He has to work hard. But who builds the house? God does. The man who watches the city has to watch. He has to stay awake all night. And he has to peer through the darkness and stay alert. But who watches the city? God does. See, that's what keeps things in balance. It doesn't take the work out of life. It takes the worry out of life. You see, it's not hard work that kills us. That's not what gives us coronaries. It's anxiety. It's fear. It's worry. And it's fear that makes us obsessed with our work because we think if, if we don't do it, nobody will. It all depends upon us. But it doesn't, see? It doesn't. Every pressure upon us, every demand upon us is a demand upon God. It's when we don't realize that that we get ourselves in trouble physically. 
and we get in trouble with our families. I have a dear friend who was a chief engineer for Ferry Steel Company in San Francisco for years and then designed proofing ovens for Langendorf Bakery. He was a typical type A personality, hard driving, very successful, very bright uh, person. And and he, he had a heart attack one day. He said he was out working in his garden and he thought an elephant had stepped on his chest. And uh, it, it was serious business. He almost died. And shortly afterward, he, uh, he wrote this poem. This is the age of the half-read page and the quick bash and the mad dash, the bright night with the, with the nerves tight, the plane hop with the brief stop, the lamp tan for in a short span, the big shot in the right spot and the brain strain and the heart pain and the cat naps till the spring snaps and the fun's done. But on the other hand, and this is what he learned through his experience, this is the age of the well-read page, the long look at the good book, the bright light, the keen insight, the flame high with the Lord nigh, the weak man in the Lord's plan, the servant's heart, and the fresh start. Then the brain strain or the heart pain, the last lap when the spring snaps means the sun's well done. See? It all depends on, on who or what you're counting upon. As Hudson Taylor put it, it's not the pressure, it's where the pressure lies. And see, that's the question we have to answer when we read a psalm like this. Who or what are we depending upon? If we're depending upon ourselves and our own energy, then uh, the heart pain and the brain strain will, uh, might very well put an end to our life. And it may very well put an end to our marriage. And it, and it can and does put an end to our relationship with our children because we prostitute our families in the name of, of success and prosperity and security. And we work and we work and we work because we think it all depends upon us. But the psalmist says, unless the Lord builds the house, you labor in vain. It's all for nothing. Unless the Lord watches the city, we watch in vain. Now that's the balance. Now he says, if, if you understand, then you can grant, he grants sleep. He, he, he gives you rest. Your, your anxiety is over. As Paul puts it in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, it, as I've said so many times before, it's not automatic. It's not like flipping a switch. Most of us can't make that shift immediately from anxiety to rest. We have to struggle, and uh, the pressure keeps coming back, and the anxiety keeps returning. But uh, if we continue to put our anxiety on him and our care upon him, then we'll begin to rest. I've, I've mentioned before a, a time when I was walking across a field with my brother-in-law and my nephew, who was just a small child then was walking along with us and uh, he was picking up round rocks, stream rocks as we walked across the field and he called them piggies 
And after a while, he had three or four of these rocks, which weighed a pound or so apiece, and he was staggering along with all these rocks. And and, uh, Ed said to David, why don't you put the piggies down, because they're too heavy for you. And he says, no, I I want to carry the piggies. And so then he looked at his dad, and he said, you carry me, and I'll carry the piggies. And Ed said, no, I'll carry the piggies, and you you can walk along with me. And I think that's what that psalm is saying, you see. The Lord carries your piggies. He carries the weight. He takes the anxiety, the restlessness out of, out of life. So you can work. So you can labor. So you can provide for your family. Now, that's the first half of the psalm. And uh, now we move into the second half, which at first reading doesn't seem to have anything whatever to do with what precedes it. Sons, he says, and by the way, when when the Hebrews referred to sons, they were also thinking of daughters. This is just a, a, another generic form of the word children. Sons are a heritage. They're a possession from God. That's the word that's translated all through the Old Testament as possession uh, with reference to Israel's possession in the land. Their land is called a possession. This word is used. Sons are a gift, a possession from the Lord. Children, a reward from him. Wages is the word, literally. Children are his wages to you. Now, you're probably thinking, uh, I'm not sure that's true. You just don't know my kids. Well, you know, it's good to think about that every once in a while. Uh, Some children are hard. Some children are very difficult to raise. Some children have physical problems. Others have emotional problems. Some children get along well in school. Others do not. Some are very tractable and easy to work with. And others are very difficult. Some are hyperactive. Some just drive you absolutely crazy. Um, But they're a gift from God. Have you ever thought about that? God looked at that child before he was born and said, Now I'm... That child is tailor-made for that family. That's God's gift to us, and we can't despise what God gives us. Everything good comes from God's hand. So even though that child may be hard to raise, that child is a gift. That's your wages. That's your reward. That's your possession from God. He says they're like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Are like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be sh- uh, not be put to shame. That is, uh, parents. They will not be put to shame, or fathers, when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Now you have to read this in the light of a Near Eastern culture. Wow. <laughs> They're going to be back in the wall here. Uh, you have to read this in the light of a Semitic culture because it, uh, it you know, it doesn't make much sense to us. What, what, what is this? They contend with your, they help you contend with your enemies in the gate. Well, uh, in in that society, having a large family was a very good thing. It was a sign of of God's blessing because it was an agrarian society. It was a farming culture and. And you put your children to work when they were very small. And they were a real help. They were an asset, a resource around the house. That's why he says, blessed is the man 
who has his quiver full of them. That's an idiom, like our idiom, money in the bank. Children are money in the bank. Uh, warriors went out to battle with a quiver full of arrows. Now he says, that's what your children are. It's like, a, like going out into battle with, with uh, arrows at hand. Uh, they're, a, they're an asset. They're your greatest asset, he says. And uh, when things get tough and you have to uh, defend yourself, they are your support. They are your defense. They're your protectors. Now, we usually turn that thing around in our culture, but in, an ancient, in the ancient world, that's what your children did. They took care of you when you, when you were old. Uh, they've discovered a lot of literature from the land of Canaan, just thousands and thousands of tablets. And one of these is a story about a man named Daniel, same name as the as the man in the Bible, a different person, of course, he's a mythical character. But uh, he was a nobleman, and he wanted a son, and he didn't have a son, and so he beseeched uh, the gods, and they gave him a son, and, and he composed a, a poem to commemorate the event. And it goes something like this. So there shall be a son in my house, a son in the midst of my palace, uh, who sets up the steely of his ancestral spirits, who frees my spirit from the earth, who guards my footsteps, who smothers my detractors, who drives off those that attack my house, who take me by the hand when I'm drunk, who carries me home when I'm sated with wine, who plasters my roof when it leaks, who washes my clothes when they're soiled. Now, we wash our kids' clothes, but uh, in Canaan, they wash their kids, or the kids wash the parents' clothes. That's a nice thing. I think we ought to work on that. <laughs> We're missing something here. But uh, the, the point is well made that uh, uh, children were protectors. Now, that's all he's talking about, saying your children are your richest and most important resource. Now, you see, I, it, it, it's getting preoccupied with our work that causes us to be misaligned. See, our wives are right when they tell us we need to be spending more time at home. We need to be spending less time on the job. But our drive for success and our desire to get ahead tends to blind us to the fact that the greatest resource I have, we have, is our children. Now, I can honestly say that. You know, we... Uh, I have, uh, my children have had a lot of trouble with me, and I have had a lot of trouble with my children, and uh, we have struggled off and on over the years. But as I look at my three young men today, I would have to say that they are the richest resource that I have. They're the greatest asset that a man could ever ask for. And uh, when those great big old guys put their arms around me and give me a great big hug, it is my greatest joy. I can't think of anything else that I would rather have. But, but there have been times in my life when I got so preoccupied with my ministry that I hardly gave them the time of day. There was one particular time back in the 60s when uh, I was involved in a, in a campus ministry. Very exciting things. I was right in the center of all of the, the radical activity in the 60s, and, and a lot of very exciting things were going on. And I was gone all the time, almost every night on the campus, doing the work of, of the Lord. And I came home one night, and Carolyn was sitting in the middle of the floor, and I was telling her about some exciting fraternity meeting that we had had. And she said, but do you realize that you haven't seen your kids for two or three weeks? 
And uh, that's exciting, but don't you realize your children need you? And that basically I'm raising two boys, we had two at the time, all by myself. Where are you? I need you. And for once, I listened to her. I took her seriously. She was dead right. She was absolutely right. I had overlooked the most important element in my life, my family, my children, my wife. And uh, I, I uh, vowed a great vow that night, which by God's grace I have generally been able to keep. And that is that I would not be gone more than three nights a week, period, no matter what, even if I had to cancel some meetings, because I needed to be available, because that was my resource. Now, I don't tell you that because I'm a paragon of fatherhood. I am not. You can check that out with my children, and they will verify that. There are a lot of things I wish I could do over in my life, in terms of my parenting. A lot of things. Uh, there are a lot of things I have not done well. But, but I have come to see that my children are the greatest asset that I have. And not only my children, but relationships in general. You see, we, we, that's where we get confused, particularly we men. We work for things. We think the things will satisfy us. They'll give us what we're looking for. But they won't. They won't. Things don't last. They don't endure. They're not eternal. The only thing that lasts is people. That's the only eternal commodity in the world. And therefore, we need to be centering on people. Now, this is true of our children, and it's true of people in general. Shame on us for running roughshod over people in order to get things. We're supposed to love people and use things, and we turn that around. And we trample all over people in our acquisition of things. Shame on us. That's wrong. We need to realize that the most important commodities on the face of the earth are people. And focus on them. Now that's what this psalm teaches us. Children are a heritage from the Lord. I have to ask myself, I have to ask you, what's important to you? Where are you spending your time? What's your most valuable asset? What do you consider to be your wealth? Is it your things, your stocks and bonds, your house, your property, your boat, your snowmobiles, your ski equipment, your fishing gear, your, your trailer, or is it people? People are the only thing that lasts. They're the only things that endure. Jesus told a story once that I think we should look at, Luke 12. Fitting conclusion, I think, to this psalm. Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples, and someone in the crowd interrupted him. Teacher, he said, I'm reading verse 13 of chapter 12, Luke 12, 13. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Completely missed the point of what Jesus was saying. He was so preoccupied with getting what was legally his that he didn't listen to what Jesus was saying. Teacher, he says, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Interesting, this is one of the few occasions when Jesus was not at all cordial. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Because Jesus saw through the motivation 
in the request. You saw that the man didn't want social justice. He was greedy. He was a materialist. He had fixed on things. Jesus said, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to him, watch out. Oh, by the way, the, the them refers to both the man and his brother. He said to both of them. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, for a lot of people, that is their philosophy of life. Life consists of an abundance of possessions. They've missed the point entirely that life consists of knowing God and serving people. That's what gives fulfillment and satisfaction in life. But they get off the track and they start pursuing things, and that's, a, that's an endless pursuit. You can never get the satisfaction that they're looking for because they think that life consists of an abundance of possessions. And so then Jesus, as he so often did, hammered home the uh, point with a parable. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He said to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops as a storage problem. What will he do? He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Retire, travel. Take it easy. Because now you have an abundance of things. So now you're really living. God said to him, fool, as you know, uh, in the Bible, a, a fool is not someone who doesn't know. It's someone who has a moral problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a matter of sin. God said, fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. This guy is uh, standing out in his backyard taking inventory of all the things he has. He has a massive coroner and he falls over. You know what Jesus intended to teach by this tale? That money is the worst investment you can possibly make. Money is the worst investment you can possibly make. Tell me, suppose somebody told you that at age 60, every dime that you have worked for will be taken away from you. What would that do to your motivation to work? How hard would you work for your money? What would you center on? If you knew that at age 60, it would all be gone. See, now none of us knows. I'll be there in seven years. What if I fall over with a, with a coroner at age 60? Who gets my money? Who gets your money? See? It's meaningless. It's empty. Gold doesn't mean anything to God. It shouldn't mean anything to us. You know what God thinks of gold? He uses it for asphalt in heaven. That's his assessment of gold. That's what Revelation tells us, that the streets of heaven are paved with gold. Suppose I applied for a loan at my bank, and uh, I took my application in and had listed among my assets three tons of concrete in my backyard. My banker would think I'd gone around the bend. But you see, that's what God is trying to tell us. We're fools. If we live and work for money, it's meaningless. doesn't matter. doesn't last. doesn't endure. What does matter? People. Knowing God and loving people. Because the only thing we're going to take with us 
is the knowledge of God, the relationship that we've developed with him, and the kingdom relationships that we've developed with other people. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it is so pointed. You'll forgive me, those of you that have heard it, but I've heard about a man who uh, found a bottle and rubbed it and out popped the genie. The genie gave him one request. The man was a stockbroker. Jeannie gave him one request. He asked for a, a newspaper one year hence. And that's a very astute man. Flipped the thing open, looked at the stock market reports, thinking about the killing he was going to make. Looked across the page, saw his picture on the other side of the page in the old bit section. <laughs> See, that puts everything in perspective, and that's what our Lord is teaching us. What, what are you spending your time and energy on? What are you laboring for? Sure, we should work. We should work hard to provide security, provide for our families. There's nothing wrong with that. But do it in a spirit of rest, quietness of heart, resting upon God to give as he sees fit. It may be his will to enrich you. It may not be. You may be poor to the end of your day, but that's all right. You'll be rich in other things. Invest your time in relationships. Those of you that don't have any children... Adopt a few. We've got a lot of we've got a lot of single parents here who really need help. Really need help. I uh, something I think so thoughtful happened. Someone did something so thoughtful at the family retreat last weekend. They, someone walked up to Delpha Bush and said, "I understand you're a single parent." She said, "Yes." The person said, "I'm a parent, but I've I've never been a single parent. What's it like to be a single parent?" Delpha told him. And she said, I want to help. What can I do? Where can I help you? What can I do with your children to help you out? Oh, what a thoughtful thing to do. So if you don't have any children, adopt a half dozen. We've got a lot of single parents with children here who, who have a great need. But invest your life where it matters. And if you've forgotten your children, go back and rebuild a relationship with them. It's never too late. It's never too late. Let's pray. Father, you have indeed made us rich, wealthy beyond our expectations. Help us to see things as you see them. Help us to put things in, in order. To seek first the kingdom of God and, and your righteousness, knowing that everything else will be added to us. Thank you that you see the sparrows fall, that you feed them, that you clothe the lilies of the field that they have no anxiety because they, they come from your hand, your creatures, created to, to display your, your life and your character. Help us to be like that, Lord, to choose to rest in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.